Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And this week I have Jamie from the podcast First Do No Harm. Hey Jamie. Hi guys. So happy to have you with us. I just discovered Jamie's podcast recently and started listening to it and it's so fascinating, Jamie. I mean, it's really a... um, it's interesting because there's so many controversial issues, and I love controversy, of course. Um, so what gave you the idea to, to do that podcast? Oh, honestly, I I did travel nursing for a while, and I took a part-time job after I got married. And the place that I started working at, it was just very toxic. And I would come home and I would cry and I would just see how patients were being poorly treated. There was just so much negativity. And then I started thinking, there's so much negativity in the world and in society right now. And I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't do much about it. And then I thought, well, I could do a podcast. I could start sharing Mm -hmm. different sides. And People could put a face, they could put a person with an idea that they may not like very much and find out that there's really a struggle in all of us. And with understanding the struggles that people go through, then hopefully we can be nicer to people. We can show more kindness. So that was really the foundation, how it all came about. I love it. I love the idea. And we we talk a lot here on Good Nurse, Bad Nurse about being kind to each other, especially nurses, you know, during handoff and, and just working together because it's hard enough as it is without having that, the issue of having to deal with your coworkers, not being nice uh, to each other, not being kind. So I definitely get where you're coming from. And, and yours is sort of goes beyond healthcare and, and just for just general, the general community. But it's all, I feel like it's also very helpful for healthcare workers as well. Thanks. So I really, yeah, I congratulate you on that. And I'm excited for my listeners to be exposed to that. And I guess we'll get started now on our in the news story. This story that we're going to talk about is a nurse who died of an aneurysm. And because she was an organ donor, they did a donor walk. Have you heard of this before doing a donor walk? Oh, yeah, it's so beautiful. Yeah, it's a, it's a neat thing. It's something that I had never heard of up until just recently. I had not heard of doing it. And then it seems like it's sort of caught on and more more hospitals are doing this. The hospital where I work is a level one trauma center. And we do have quite a few deaths that are sort of unexpected from car accidents and things like that. So not that those are the only types of people that can be donors, but we have. it seems like we have a, a lot of those situations and they've recently started doing this as well. And we just had one the other day. And so it it sort of this story hit home because it was a nurse. She had devoted 30 years to saving patients' lives. And then after she died, she continues, she will continue to save people's lives and and give someone else life through a final, you know, act of kindness and generosity through organ donation. So I thought that was really neat. That's awesome. And I, I saw too, where her family said that she really wanted to travel. And she didn't get the opportunity to travel much in her life. But they saw this as a way that pieces of her would get to go to different places that she never had the opportunity to and live somewhere mm. she never got to go to. I thought that was pretty beautiful too. I think that's wonderful. You know, 
sometimes we have all of these plans and, and we think when I retire, I'm going to do this or when I'm able to or save up money or whatever the reason is that we're going to do something and then time just kind of runs out. So I think that's neat. It's sort of an indirect way of her kind of getting to, to do what she never got to do when she was alive. Also, it says talking about her, her son. Everybody was crying. People he didn't even know came up to him during the time and said how much they loved her, how much she helped them get further in their career, and said that he expected maybe 20 people from her time as an OR nurse and her current position to be there, but he didn't expect over 100 people would be impacted so much. So he, it just amazed him, all the people that showed up to support her while this was going on. So I thought that was really neat. It means a lot to the family. It's a wonderful way to, for one thing, bring awareness to organ donation, because there's still, unfortunately, a lot of people, I don't know why, for whatever reason, they're not comfortable with it. And for some people, it may be a religious reason that they they don't believe in it. But I think some people are still a little bit, they don't really understand it. And they feel like there's that somehow they're life is going to be ended too short if they put themselves down as an organ donor. Have you ever heard someone say that before? Oh, yeah. I unfortunately have a family member who influenced another family member of mine to recant their organ donation. And she's a nurse. I don't know what kind Uh. of nurse she was, but she convinced my family member that if he was an organ donor that they couldn't use his organs anyways because he was 85. But if they saw that, that they wouldn't do anything to save his life if he was dying. Hmm. That they would try to get whatever they could, whatever they could salvage if there was anything. Well, I don't know where she works, if she works at the bedside, but I have personally been involved in situations at the hospital where someone was dying and then they eventually did end up being an organ donor. And it just does, that's not how it works at all. Not at all. The organ donation process does not start until that patient has passed away or has reached a point that there is nothing else they can do. And then, then the talk starts. It's not, there's not, it's not like there are vultures hanging around waiting for someone to die uh, and then deciding at the last minute, you know, maybe this person's life over here is more important. That's just not how that works. But I can understand people having fears about it though. And even the criteria though, for as nurses, we can't approach anyone for organ donation and they have to have this criteria that their functionality of life with no sedation, with they're the bare minimum before we can even call a a donation service that will at that point talk to family members. It's just, it's so complex and you have to be so sick before anyone can come to you about it. So you're not healthy when they want to talk to family members about organ donation. Exactly. If they say no, they don't, they're not going to use that person as a donor. You really aren't out anything. There's not, it doesn't cost anything. There's no delay in postmortem care or anything like that. So I don't really understand that sort of argument, you know, against it that you may not be a a candidate anyway, because you could help someone who is not, who's still living and help their quality of life or help them to be able to live longer. Maybe if you can donate a kidney or a vital organ like that, actually be able to, they don't have to have dialysis anymore. It's amazing. There are people waiting for organs all over the country, all over the world. It's a beautiful gift to give someone 
Well, I just would like to encourage everyone to consider it. If you if you haven't checked that little thing on your driver's license, maybe reconsider, do some research on it if you're still uncomfortable about it and just see if maybe the things that you had in your mind are maybe not maybe not what you thought they were. I would encourage you to just look into that a little bit more and, and reconsider and stop and think about how you would feel if for some reason you had your loved one had um, something going on with you that you needed an organ and you were waiting on a list to get an organ and there are people dying every day for one reason or another and then just their bodies are just buried and those organs are just buried in the ground with them and they're it's just really sad to me and i think it's also important that people understand that even if they check the box on their driver's license it's it's so vital that you have a conversation with your family and you mm-hmm. make them know as well what your wishes may be. I'm 34 years old. I'm healthy. But my entire family knows that if anything were to happen to me, that that's my desire. Because unfortunately, healthcare providers, they don't always go by your driver's license. Your next of kin, they can recant it in a lot of places. So, if that's something that you're passionate about and that's a gift that you want to give other people, I highly encourage you to have the uncomfortable conversation with your family and just let them know that that's truly something that you want to do if if it comes down to it one day. Absolutely. I agree. I think that's a great idea just to be sure and have those. And it's not fun having conversations like that, obviously, but it's not like it takes that long and it's something you could even type up, you know, in a document and have notarized and just have that there so that you make everyone aware of it. So anyway, just consider that. That's that's a really sweet thing that that nurse did and a really nice, you know, legacy for her to to pass on. So now I guess we will go into our bad nurse story. And Jamie, I always call this awkward transition time because I'm the world's worst. <laughs> I'm like, I'm terrible at having conversations sometimes. Like I'm like one of those people where I'm like, okay, I'm done now. I just want to turn around and walk away awkwardly because I don't know. (laughs) That's incredible because your podcast sounds so great. I can't, I can't link it. (laughs) Well, I, I guess I must be getting better at editing because I I guess I can, if those awkward times, I just kind of go, I don't like how that sounds. Mm -hmm. I just take it out. Mm -hmm. So Anyway, this story is really a fascinating story. It involves a corrections nurse, and our both are good and bad nurse story involve corrections nurses. But this story actually starts with an inmate that's at the correctional facility, and this is the Jefferson County Correctional Facility in Missouri. His name is Eugene Claypool. And if we go, we have to go kind of all the way back to the beginning of his incarceration or even before that and and back to what he did just to kind of give some background for people to sort of understand this whole story that just took place recently. But back when Eugene Claypool was 21 years old, he and another man broke into Donald Hardwick's home, who was 72 years old at the time, and he attacked him in his sleep. So. Mr. Hardwick had won $1.7 million in the Missouri lottery in 1998. And Mr. Claypool somehow had the idea that Mr. Claypool had $10,000 hidden in his house somewhere. And so he and his accomplice broke into the home late at night or really in the wee hours in the morning on Christmas morning. And this was the year 2000. 
So they start looking for the money. I guess every, you know, he, he and his wife were asleep. And so they start looking through the house, going through, trying to find. And when they, I guess, end up back in the bedroom where he's asleep. Now he is, he's 72 years old, as I said. He's feeble. He has to use a walker to get around. So this is someone I, I picture a patient that I would take care of on the progressive care unit where I work. And I could just so so see this man and it just breaks my heart. But they go in and he's asleep. And I guess they woke him up because they're looking around for the money. And they must have just decided to try to restrain him. And then Mr. Claypool decides to start stabbing him. I, I don't know if he just figured, well, he's seen me now, so I have to kill him or what happened. But he did kill him by stabbing him repeatedly while the while his accomplice held him down. And then for whatever reason, they when they when he was found later that morning by his wife because they didn't sleep in the same room they slept in separate rooms oh. you know as as sometimes older couples will do that they one snores or whatever. <laughs> and so well she went into the kitchen first and saw that there was a broken window and then she went back there and found her husband and there was a bible left on his chest. Oh, I know. It's just heartbreaking. It really is. It's horrifying to think about something like that happening. And like I said, I could, I can see these people. I could just see them. I just, I see them every day. We talk all the time. I can hand off. I'm a team leader where I work. And so the team leaders hand off every single patient unit, you know, so we, we go through and sometimes I'm just like, this is the same person that I was just telling you about because they sound so similar, you know, COPD exacerbation, congestive heart failure exacerbation, things like that. They're just that age, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I can just see this little guy and his wife and it just absolutely kills me, but they caught him and his accomplice and Eugene Claypool accepted a plea deal and was sentenced to life in prison for second degree murder. And he's actually still in prison, but I don't even understand why it would be second degree murder. I don't, have you ever served on a jury? I have not. Well, I have. So I am an expert apparently because <laughs> <laughs> I've done it twice. So I know every, I'm practically a lawyer. <laughs> and you do these podcasts about all these cases. So of course. <laughs> well, yeah. And I do learn quite a bit when I do that just from doing research because I'll, you know, a question like that will occur to me and I'll think seems odd. And I will look some things up sometimes and try, you know, try to figure out why something would be a certain way. And what I found out is a lot of times these laws differ from state to state. Now, you know, murder is, there's felony murder and it's federal thing. Of course, that's consistent. But but then sometimes state to state, it may matter how the, the murder took place, whether or not they consider it felony murder. And I did find that out when I did, I was on a jury for a murder. What the prosecutor explained to us during this trial that I was on, that I was where I was a juror, was that intent to kill can be formed within a second. You can, if you are involved in some sort of act, like a robbery, or you were fighting someone, or whatever the, the thing is that, that's, that's going on, Maybe you didn't come there intending to kill someone. You didn't premeditate to kill them before you you got there. But you can form that premeditation within seconds. You, if you look at that person and you decide right now, I'm I'm going to kill you. That can be considered premeditation, and that's something I did learn when I was on the jury. So this is confusing to me, and I don't know if it's because you know sometimes I just want to make these plea deals because they don't want to put the family through a trial and they figure, you know, giving him 
because he got 25 years, well, a minimum of 25 years before he would even be eligible for, for parole. So even though it was second degree murder, that's still a long time to spend in prison. That was a horrible way to kill someone, though. So I feel like I feel like 25 years is nothing in comparison to what that poor little man suffered, though. I agree. It's hard for me to understand it. I don't know. I don't understand it. But then again, I don't know, like I said, the, the criminal justice system there in in Missouri where this took place at the time in 2001 and why all this, why it all happened that way. But the result was that he did get 25 years to, to life, or life in prison, which was 25 years, and then with the possibility of parole. So I guess he would have at this by, you know, this is 2019, he, he would have served 25 years, unless my math is really bad, which is possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess maybe what happens, though, is that they reach that period, that 25 year period, and then they're eligible for parole. But it probably is one of those situations where like the, the system is so backed up, it's not like they just immediately send them before the parole board, or maybe he was denied parole. So for whatever reason, he is still in prison to this day. So now here we are in 2018. This was last year that this happened. And there's a nurse. Her name is Amy Murray. She's a corrections nurse there at, at that the Jefferson County facility. And she's 40 years old. She's been married to Joshua Murray, who is a construction worker. He's 37. They've been married 15 years. They have an 11-year-old son. And she, according, now this is something I will say this, this is according to reports because this has not gone to trial yet. So, I will, I have to always say, you know, this is, of course, allegedly, and she, she has not been convicted of anything, but this is the story of what happened. Right. Yeah. So this is someone's account of what happened, but she developed a relationship with Mr. Claypool. So this is the reason that we wanted to kind of tell you guys this, the backstory of Mr. Claypool, just to understand the person. And I don't mean to say that someone can't be rehabilitated or that you you know, you can commit a horrible crime or do something really atrocious, you know, when you're younger and turn into a different person. So I don't mean to suggest that you can't. But at the same time, you know, she's been married 15 years, she's got an 11 year old son. And so it does seem odd that she would develop a relationship with an inmate and, you know, abandon the family. So what happened here is around two o'clock in the morning on December the 11th, 2018, neighbors called 911 and reported a fire at their house. Amy and Joshua Murray, they realize there's a fire. They go outside to see what's going on. They find Amy and their son and their dogs are outside of the house and they're fine. They're doing just fine. Nobody's hurt. And firefighters get there and they go into the house and they find Joshua Murray dead and his body is charred from the fire. So Amy tells investigators that she had taken her son out to McDonald's for a hamburger. And when she returned to the house, it was engulfed in flames. And she said there was no way that she could get into the house to save her husband. So, of course, as you can imagine, everyone feels terrible for Amy. I mean, that that would be horrible if you, a friend of yours, a coworker, a neighbor, if this happened to them, I, I would be doing everything I could to try to help them raise money for her. Let's... Uh, see, you know, donate things, whatever you can do. She just lost everything. She lost her husband. She lost her home. But she was out with her son at two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. <laughs> I know. To go get it's, a hamburger. I know. It's really, it's really weird, isn't it? 
I thought that was kind of weird, too. It wasn't like a weekend night and they had a late night out with her and her kid. This was a Uh Tuesday. Right. So, no time passes at all before she starts having phone conversations with one of the inmates at the prison. And these phone conversations are recorded. That's Eugene Claypool. And some of these conversations took place before her husband died. So, all of them, I guess, are recorded and kept. I don't know how long they keep them, but they must have been kept because... This is something that's just a stated fact. It's not a recording is a recording. So if if they say she was having these conversations with him and and that they happened before he died, then that's not something she can exactly say. No, I didn't. If it's her voice. right? (laughs) So she told in these conversations, she did tell the inmate, Mr. Claypool, that she was tired of being around her husband. She wanted a divorce. And then after he died, she told him that, well, now she's free to marry him because her husband is dead. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. She talked about hiring him a lawyer to try to get him released from prison early. And apparently, and I don't, again, I don't understand all this, but he's eligible for parole in 2027. But of course, even then, there's no guarantee that he will be granted parole. Meanwhile, police and firefighter investigations, they're looking into the crime scene. They don't just take at face value everything that people say when something like this happens. They go in and investigate, of course. And they felt like it did seem a little bit suspicious that she would be recorded saying that she wanted a divorce. Then her husband dies in a fire while she's gone with her son and two dogs at two in the morning. That's a little bit of a strange coincidence. (laughs) You would think. She she would think. Uh Uh-huh. So, It occurs to them that she told them that she wasn't able to get back into the house when she got back from McDonald's because the smoke was too thick. But the problem is that there was a half-eaten McDonald's hamburger on the kitchen counter. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. How'd that get there? I'm not sure what her explanation is for that. If she's maybe saying that there was that hamburger had been sitting there before, it wasn't the same hamburger. Who knows what she what her explanation is for how that hamburger got there, or if she somehow forgot that she went, you know, that she went in. But surely she's got some some sort of explanation as to how that happened. But that was a little suspicious. You know, the investigators were like, hmm, that's, that's definitely, they're definitely going to put that in the column of this woman has the most convenient coincidences following her around. <laughs> and so they discovered that the fire was intentionally, it seemed to be set intentionally at the bed in the master bedroom. So when the autopsy was complete, it showed that he didn't actually die in the fire. And apparently he was already dead before the fire was even set. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. What was found in his system that let them know that he was dead before was ethylene glycol, which is also known as antifreeze. So he had antifreeze or the chemicals that are used to make antifreeze in his system they can tell that he didn't die by the fire. His out The outside of his body is charred, but he didn't have any smoke inhalation. So if you, yeah, that's, that's anybody who watches forensic files knows this. Well, I feel like any nurse should know that. Yeah. Some of these stories just make nurses as a whole seem like we are not an intelligent bunch. Mm-hmm. I feel like because, you know, Amy, I've done a lot of stories on doctors as well, and that's blows my mind sometimes how it's not easy getting into nursing school. It's not easy getting out of nursing school. <laughs> it's not it's even harder getting out. It's <laughs> it's not easy getting into medical school. My thing is neither neither of these, you know, typical of the typical person who would be a nurse or a doctor 
are going to be um, an intelligent people. You just can't make it through and get a degree like that without having some sense ahead on your shoulders. And yet sometimes these people make the craziest decisions and you just think, even if you wanted to do that, what in the world were you thinking? How did you think this was a good idea? Why would you choose to do it in this way? Right. And I mean, unfortunately, I would think that people in our profession would have a leg up. You know, like we we know what the body does, how it processes mm-hmm. things. We know how they go through and look to determine what caused death. Mm-hmm. How do you think any of that's going to get by? I, this is just crazy. It's crazy. And they... Shows like Forensic Files, CSI, NCIS, these shows have been around now for like 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I know that the vast majority of people in the free world are familiar with a lot of these things. Everybody knows that if someone doesn't die in a fire and then is placed in a fire, that they can immediately tell that they didn't die. It's kind of like someone who dies before they're put into water. They can mm-hmm. tell that they didn't drown. And I, I just don't understand it. But that's what these people do. It's just amazing. I'm also curious, didn't they change because people used to poison other people with antifreeze a lot because it was tasteless? But mm-hmm. they made it where there was a, a taste to it now that you could pick up that whatever you were consuming was something not good. So that's another strange thing. I wonder, who knows? I mean, there has to be some way that she got it into his system without him knowing. Some type of cocktail? Yeah. I mean, maybe she put it in food or possibly even injected it Mm. while he was asleep or something. I don't know. Who knows what's going through, you know, what someone is capable of that's that's capable of doing this. And like, like I said, this is all sort of speculation because she is innocent until proven guilty. But we can definitely talk about the evidence that's out there uh, in the public for everyone to know. So the story about her going to McDonald's was partly true. She did go to McDonald's. There's surveillance video showing her going through the drive-thru. I bet she did. Yeah. At 11.48 on December the 10th. And that's the night the you know, the night before midnight, you know, it happened um, in the wee hours of the morning on December 11th. And there are cell phone records that show her phone inside the home around 1.30 a.m. So she goes through the drive-thru at McDonald's at 11.48, before, right before midnight. But then somehow the cell phone records show her actually inside the home, you know, an hour and 40 minutes later, but before she called 911. She was obviously fired from her job at the prison, and then they arrested her and charged her with first-degree murder. The arrest took place in February of this year, and they haven't set a trial date because I was looking for some updates for it, and apparently they haven't set a trial date. This just happened in December this past year. That's crazy. So it hasn't, yeah, it hasn't been that long. So that's our bad nurse story. It'll be interesting to sort of see how that plays out and whether or not she decides to take a plea, you know, because... There is a lot of evidence against her, but she is saying that she is not guilty and that she didn't do it. So if in fact she didn't do it, then she's probably going to have a you know a hard time doing a plea deal because who wants to say they did something if they didn't really do it? Right. A lot of evidence against her. And if, the, if you can trust the evidence that's been put out there by the 
stateside. Or maybe that's going to be her argument is that I'm a nurse. I know better. I wouldn't do anything like that because Mm -hmm. I would know that smoke inhalation in your lungs, that would be a clear sign. Why would I kill him prior to leaving him there? That may be a good defense for her. Yeah. Maybe if she's saying, stop and think about it, I I would know better. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be so dumb as to think that I would get away with something like this. So why would I do it? But then I just wonder how you explain away the antifreeze chemical being in the system. I would imagine there could be some chemicals or some something that you could ingest that could possibly have those chemicals in it. I, I don't know. Or are they going to say that he did this to himself somehow, you know, by committing? Yeah. But then how do you go? How do you? How do you torture mm-hmm, yourself after you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you really go about going against what's pretty much accepted as scientific reality. And that's th- that you have to have smoke in your lungs in order to have died in a fire mm-hmm. unless they have some expert. And that, that's the thing. I mean, sometimes people, attorneys can get very creative with their defense cases. And it depends on probably how much money she has to spend on a defense attorney as far as and, and how much um, they can afford to get expert witnesses to come in and say, oh, no, this is not always the case. You, There have been people who've died in fires before that we 100% know they they definitely died in the fire who didn't have smoke in their lungs, you know, things like that, mm-hmm. that could happen. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and what her defense is, because obviously she's not saying anything now other than not guilty because they have to build a, she has to build a defense for herself and they have to kind of play it, co- you know, close to the chest for now until the trial. Well, it'll be a good one to follow up on. Mm-hmm. Interested to see how it plays out. I'm going to um, keep my eye on it. And then maybe whenever there's some more news to report about it, we'll maybe do a little follow-up episode on it. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. So that's our bad nurse for this week, corrections nurse. So the good nurse this week is also a corrections nurse. But she, and you know, and the thing is, Jamie, it's so easy to find good nurse stories. It's for every bad nurse or bad doctor or bad, because I do, you know, different healthcare professionals. I don't just pick on nurses. Mm-hmm. There are probably thousands of stories about healthcare professionals doing wonderful, amazing things just every day in life. And it's just, those are, it's sort of fun when I'm trying to do my research because I read these all the time. And at my list of good nurse stories that I like for, you know, in the future that I want to do. It's so long because there's so many of them. And they're really the bad ones are, they're a little harder to find. They're more obscure. Thank goodness. That is such a nice thing to know. I mean, (laughs) hope for humanity, especially in our profession. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and we do have a very noble profession and, and healthcare in general. If you're in healthcare, most people especially if you stay in it for any amount of time. Some people may go into it who are not necessarily, their personality may not be the most caring and giving person, but a lot of times they don't last because it's just, it's not an easy profession. And if if, you, if your heart's not in it, it's going to be, it's not going to be easy to stick around. But this nurse is, her name is Maureen Fitzpatrick. Maureen is a nurse at the Norfolk County Jail in Massachusetts. The story is on the corrections1.com 
page. So it's about corrections officers. And this is the story is out of Massachusetts. So Norfolk County Jail, and she um, is the nurse there. And an inmate was trying to attack a corrections officer. And she intervened and basically didn't even hesitate. This corrections officer is being attacked on the medical unit. And she just jumped in there and pulled that inmate off the officer. That's pretty hardcore. Yeah, because that is scary. I mean, even if you trusted the person, like maybe she had dealt with that inmate before and didn't think that that person would harm her. You, When someone is angry, you can't rely on, you know, everything goes out the window. Uh And so I know she, you know, her instincts had to have been that 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 inmate was out of control and capable of really anything. And they are on this corrections officer attacking them. And she pulled them off. Not only, you know, I mean, just going for help or doing whatever you could or knocking them over the head, picking up something, trying to help any way you can. But she literally pulled, physically pulled this inmate off of. And this woman, uh, if you look at the picture of her on, uh, like in the story, She's like this tiny little woman. She is. <laughs> it's awesome. I think that's amazing that she was that she did this without even thinking about her own safety, obviously. I mean, this could have ended so differently. And it's it's so different too. I mean, being in a hospital setting would be different than being in an ICU or a progressive mm-hmm. care unit. If someone comes in, like it's a little bit easier, I would think, yeah. to get a civilian, but an inmate? That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Kudos to her. That's that's super impressive. Well, she apparently some other people thought it was impressive, too, because she got an award by she was given an award by the lieutenant governor, Karen Polito, and the state secretary of public safety and security, Thomas Turco. And she was given a medal of honor which is apparently the highest honor or award that you can get as a correctional worker. Oh, that's amazing. Good for her. <laughs> yeah, I know. She totally deserves it. And it's just, there's an awesome picture of her standing there with uh, who I can ass- only assume is the Secretary of you know Public Safety and Security and then some officers around her. And she's like this, this tiny little woman. And these <laughs> men are huge <laughs> around her. And I can just only imagine. And, and it doesn't say who the corrections officer was that she was helping. And I, I don't want to assume that it was a man because obviously it could have been a woman. Mm-hmm. But still, that person, the you know, a nurse is not. I'm sure she probably had to take some training of how to protect herself. Oh yeah. But at the same time, a, a corrections officer they they understand that they're there to control the inmates, to protect the public, and they put themselves in harm's way. The nurse is sort of usually relying on the CO for you know, to protect her is, is how I would see that. If mm-hmm, I do too. If I were brave enough to be a nurse in a sheriff's office or in a in a prison or something, I I would be really heavily I mean, I when I think about I don't know about you, Jamie, but when I'm working at the hospital, I rely heavily on our security team for just that for understanding that if I have any problem whatsoever, I'm gonna call them and I expect them to be the one to intervene. Mm-hmm. Not the other, yeah, not the other way around. Not that I wouldn't. I would hope that I would, uh, but it's so hard for me to imagine being in the position that she was in, and then just jumping on an inmate like that and 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 putting my myself at risk. I, I don't want to assume that I wouldn't, 
but that's just kind of crazy. I don't know. I think I would have a really tough time with it. I would be a little chicken. I'm just being honest. (laughs) You know, and maybe she just, it's one of those situations, you know, a few weeks ago, we, um, I believe it was Christina and I, we did a story about a doctor in, I want to say it was New Orleans. He was a resident and he was coming home from a night shift, long hours at, at the hospital. And the streets were dead and he was kind of going through the middle of the night, early wee hours in the morning. And he sees a man holding a woman at gunpoint, kind of dragging her along the sidewalk. And he stopped his car and intervened. And so when I hear people doing this, I automatically think, oh my gosh, because, you know, we're sitting here in our rational minds, not being presented with the situation. So we really don't know what we would do. But at the same time, I just think that it takes an exceptional person to see a situation like that and run at it. Mm-hmm. And I, so I, I just think she deserves that award and she deserves that honor. And I'm really proud of her as I always am of, of the nurses that we talk about. And I'm, you know, I don't know. That just makes me proud to be a nurse. Right. I agree. I couldn't agree more. So that is our good nurse story of the week. And Jamie, what do you think? I thought you did a great job. Oh, well, thanks. I (laughs) thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for being here and agreeing to do this. We're going to, you guys, I am going to do an episode with Jamie on her podcast, First Do No Harm. And so I want you to be looking for that whenever she comes out. Jamie, do you have any idea when that episode will be released just so we can give them an idea? It'll probably be released within the next week. Oh, okay. Perfect. Mm -hmm. So if you guys want to go and check that out and let them know too, Jamie, how can they find you? Um, Are you on social media or... I am on social media. I have a First Do No Harm page on Facebook. I am also on Instagram as First Do No Harm. Then if you want to listen to the podcast and not just the social media updates, you can find um, the podcast on Anchor. It's also on iTunes. It's on Google. It's on Stitcher and about five other platforms. Awesome. And you'll find, um, I don't know how long you've been doing this. It seemed like there were like, what, about 16 or 17 episodes. Mm -hmm. So I find my podcast on all these obscure platforms (laughs) that I, I had nothing to do with. And I'm like, Oh, well, how'd that get there? Oh, well, I guess that's fine. I mean, (laughs) as long as someone's (laughs) enjoying it, right? I know. I know. It doesn't bother me. I'm just like, yeah, whatever you want to do. So you guys, I hope you have a great week and be sure and go to the website. I appreciate you guys for giving me some feedback. Mark definitely appreciates it. My husband, he did uh, my website for me, as you guys know, and I appreciate all of the feedback them getting some wonderful emails and really good feedback. You guys are good. In fact, one, one girl that sent me an email, I was like, do you have like a business doing this or something? Because the, she was like, she was so good. My husband's like, wait, we got to do this stuff. It's really good. <laughs> That's awesome. I know. So we really appreciate it. Um, look around. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, of course. But I want you guys to, of course, remember, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. 